at this time, we're going we're to turn to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, we're heading towards the end of this book that we've been studying over the past few weeks. And so we're going to be in, at the end of Colossians chapter 3 this morning. So if you all would please stand with me and give attention to the reading of God's Word in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22, a short passage today. It says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Our great God, we come to you this morning, and we recognize that this is your church. This is your people. This gathering is created by you. This isn't our doing, but it's because of what Jesus has done for us that we are here. And so we want to, this morning now, give attention to your word, and I do pray that you would show up through your spirit, speak to our hearts and lives, give us fresh eyes to see and hearts to receive these truths. And we pray that through this, uh, the name of Christ would be lifted up that we would truly be able to worship you together as your people. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Let me just ask you guys, as as we get started this morning, what is the worst job that you have ever had to perform? The worst job you've ever had to work? Just think, all all through your life, what was the worst thing you ever had to do? I'm sure that we've all had, had jobs that at some point in our life we, we worked that we absolutely hated, that, that it was miserable going to work every day. And I bet we could spend all day in here trying to kind of one-up each other on who had the worst job. I bet those who, who worked in, the, uh, in, in maybe the medical field, some nurses or, or doctors in here, probably have some pretty amazing stories to tell us of things they've had to do. Maybe those who are in the military, Trey King and others, probably have some brutal things that they had to endure. Uh, maybe some in fast food industry, maybe that was a, a brutal time. But I've had, I've had to work a number of, uh, of, of pretty awful jobs over, over my life, but probably the worst ones came through the years that I spent working in the restoration industry. And so for those of you that don't know, I, I worked for, for about eight years uh, dealing with, with, with property damage, and it was a, a basically a 24-hour emergency response companies that I worked for that dealt with fire and water damage to properties. So we would have to go out and get called out to clean them up. And uh, there's, too many, there's too many to actually remember in terms of, of how bad they were and some of the, some of the worst ones. You know, there, there, there were some where you'd go into the house and the mold was so bad that everything looked like it was covered in shag carpet. There were... There, there were others where it was just going into maybe a house that had been hoarded with, with content forever, and then uh, a flood had come through, and uh, that stuff had sat there for a while. So some pretty brutal things that we had to endure. But some of the worst ones, jobs that I was on, was actually uh, took place back in, uh, in, in 2013 when we had the, uh, the heavy rains and the floods that happened. We worked for a couple months down in Boulder and Longmont. Some of those jobs were, were some of the worst that, that, that I had had to, that I had to uh, endure. There was one in particular in, in Longmont that we, we showed up at, and uh, as, you, as, you, as you arrived at the street, it didn't look too bad, 
Uh, it, the, the ground actually wasn't flooded there. there was, the houses seemed to be okay. As we walked into the, the, the main level of the home, it actually didn't look like things were too out of place. But what happened actually during those floods is that much of the damage wasn't necessarily groundwater getting into homes, but it was actually the sewer system just becoming so inundated that it actually backed up into, into many homes that were in low-lying areas. And so as we go into this home, as we open the door to the basement, we, are, we encounter about four and a half, five feet of raw sewage covering the entire basement. And it is our job to clean it up. And I even brought, I even during that time, kind of recruited some different folks from, from the crossing here to just come down and help us a, a couple of days, get paid. And you should just see guys' eyes as they, as they show up on this job. Like, wh- how are we going to do this? You want me to go in there? We had suits, we had masks and everything, but uh, it was brutal. So I, have, I have many stories about those kind of jobs. But uh, over those years, there were, there were many times where I showed up to a job saying to myself, why on earth am I doing this? How can I get through this? What am I doing? Can I just leave? I got to go find something else. There were many times that thought entered in. And I imagine that many of you can relate to those type of questions. Maybe even now there are some of you who are, who are considering uh, a change of career, a change of, 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 of job path. Maybe you're debating whether you should leave your job right now. It's too oppressive. It's too difficult. Maybe some of you are just stuck in this cycle of trying, kind of searching for that job that you think you're going to, that, that you're going to enjoy, that's going to be satisfying. Wrestling through that. Maybe you, you've shifted jobs many times in the last few years and you just can't seem to find something that fulfills you. We all wrestle through this in our work, how, how, we, how we can find satisfaction, how we can keep going in work or a specific job. Those are things we all wrestle with. And this passage presents us with the question of what motivates our work. How do we find purpose in our work? How do we keep working hard even when circumstances of our jobs are less than ideal? Maybe the people or situations that we're called to work in are not easy. And we have all been placed in life scenarios where we have had to either respond to authority over us or we have been placed in positions of authority over others. And the question is, how do we respond in whatever place or circumstance we find ourselves in? But from the outset here, as we approach this passage, I want to say that although this passage does, I believe, accurately apply to our employee-employer type relationships that we experience, that we enter into, I don't want to jump there just too quickly, because I want to deal with the reality that we are confronted with in this passage and in many other passages in Scripture, and that is the glaring reality that Paul here directly addresses slaves and masters. And I don't want to just ignore it and pretend like this is all about just the workplace, but but he's actually speaking to slave owners and slaves, who actually are probably in the church together. And I want to at least address this, this, this issue and not just, not just like ignore it, because there, there are many skeptics out there who will, who will come to a passage like this and they'll say, hey, I, I can't believe the Bible. I, 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 can't, I can't believe that book because you know what? That book endorses slavery. It encourages slavery. The Bible is immoral because it doesn't call for, for slavery to be removed. He's encouraging these slaves to obey their masters and owners. 
And so, so, so I think that's a valid question and, and, and something that we need to wrestle with. We need to wrestle with that when we enter, encounter texts like this. And so I just want to start by, by looking at the honest reality of slavery in this passage and, and really in the Bible. There's a few things that we can say about it. First of all, I, I want to be clear and I want to say that slavery has always been and always will be a sinful practice in a fallen world. God did not establish, nor did he promote slavery. He didn't promote it as the ideal, but fallen humanity has distorted God's design for human relationships and adopted this practice. And God at times does accommodate his revelation to particular historical contexts and even to the fallen social structures that are within them. So that's first. Another point that we need to keep in mind is that slavery in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul is writing was different from the slavery that we oftentimes think of in the 17 and 1800s in this country and that we see even in other parts of the world today. It was different. How so? When we, when we think of slavery, we often have this picture in our mind, right, rooted in our country. And we, we often think of, of a race-based subjugation and ownership of another human being. We think of the, the capturing of blacks in Africa and transporting them across and selling them into slavery and being treated in any way that the owner desires. And this was a very dark time in our nation and a practice that is intrinsically evil and wicked. And Scripture never condones this. In fact, in Exodus 21, in the giving of the law, it says this, it says, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. So it's actually the death penalty called for, for, for trying to, to enslave another person wrongly. In 1 Timothy 1.9, passage that says, it's, it's displaying why the law was given. It's for the righteous, but because of wickedness. And within this list of all these, all these ones for whom the law was given... He lists murderers, the ungodly, adulterers, the irreligious, and he includes slave traders in that list. So, so, so the Bible does speak against specific forms of slavery directly. But the slavery that we, that, we, that we oftentimes think of was a little bit different of the whole construct of slavery that existed in the Greco-Roman world. And so what was it like? And I, and I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't all that bad, like it wasn't a big deal, because it was. It was terrible. Many slaves died and were treated terribly in the Roman Empire. But it was, it was a different context than we often think of. See, slaves served in a wide variety of roles and conditions. The historical estimates range from anywhere from 30 up to 60% of the population was, was, was probably slaves. And slavery in the ancient world was not exclusively based on race, as we understand it and oftentimes associate it with. It was not a race-based slavery. But slaves were found from all ethnicities and all social backgrounds. Slavery was different in regards to how one became a slave and the possibility of actually gaining freedom. And the gaining of freedom is something that Paul actually encourages in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, hey, if, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, go for it. Like, like, like do that. That's probably best. That's ideal. But then he also speaks into those who, who are in a system and in, in a condition that isn't easily torn down. 
Many slaves became slaves as captives of war. As the Roman Empire expanded, many who were defeated, especially of the armies, were actually placed in direct subjugation of Rome. Other slaves were criminals who were forced into slavery, and others were, were, were put in that to pay off a debt. Sometimes we, th- we think of the gladiators. Many of the gladiators were put into slavery, uh, either, either as captives of war or criminals. But being able to pay off your debt was one form of slavery in which you could enter into it willingly. You could sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. And in those instances, many times and oftentimes, it was a a form of self-preservation, of survival, to be able to sell yourself into slavery. Slaves in Greco-Rome experienced a wide range of treatment. Some were placed in cruel conditions, working in mines and other areas of agriculture, and many of them would die early. Other slaves received education and would become even family teachers, doctors, and caretakers. Some slaves would would become not too unlike a modern in-house nanny or butler. So there's this, this wide variety of slaves. Slaves also had the possibility of buying and gaining their freedom. In Israel's law, the seventh year of Jubilee called for the release of slaves. So when Paul writes to this culture, he is speaking to a diversity of conditions and to an institution that is deeply woven into all aspects of Roman society and economic life. So it's a little bit different historical context in which he's writing. But at the end of the day, we are still struck with this reality, that the Bible, Jesus and the apostles, never explicitly condemn the institution of slavery as a whole, and nor do they outright call for its abolition. And what do we do with that? Because everything inside us like, why didn't they just call for it to be done? Why didn't they just try to get rid of it? Like, like why, why didn't they go there? And, and it's worth asking why. And I want to I try to speak into that why question this morning. There's a lot more that can be said, but I think we need to start with this. That the Bible is a book about spiritual redemption and not social reform. Jesus and the apostles did not seek to start a political or social revolution. And the Bible does not try to change social, economic, and cultural practices at a national policy level. And Jesus often approached social issues kind of through the back door. Throughout the Bible, we see that the reality is that change doesn't happen by addressing the external construct first, but by the priority of transforming the heart. And when spiritual renewal happens within a people, those transformed lives will extend out into the transformation of society and cultural renewal. Scripture never establishes or originates slavery, but it regulates and manages the social structures that are already in place. And I believe that Jesus and Paul here understood that it is far more powerful to renew a people's conception of social standing than to merely revolutionize a social institution. And at times, we as a society may think that we have achieved some moral high ground because in the last few hundred years we have, we have abolished slavery at least as a, as a national legalized practice. 
And we can now look down on that practice with disgust and think that, that, that we, have, we have solved it and we have gotten to this high ground. And that was a, an amazing victory for, for England and for this country to, to abolish slavery, to make it illegal. Many battles were fought, and rightfully so, to get to that point. But we need to ask, has the abolition of slavery as a legalized institution solved the problems of the abuse of power and authority and the exploitation of others? My, uh, my wife often re- refers to me as kind of having an obsessive personality. One of, uh, whenever I get into something, I've got to do it fully, I've got to take care of it, I, I get obsessed with it. My latest obsession has been the constant, never-ending battle against dandelions in my yard. <laughs> Can you relate to this? The grass may not be perfect, it may not be, you know, thick and everything, but, but I am trying to eradicate the dandelions in my yard. And it's so hard because our neighbors don't do anything about theirs. So theirs is just this field of dandelions constantly blowing into ours. I'm, I'm, I'm battling it all over the place. But when you see those dandelions start growing up in your yard in the in the uh, springtime, sometimes in the fall. How do you approach it? How do you, how, do you, how do you get rid of them? As you see those yellow flowers blossom, what would happen if we went out, I went out to the yard and I just took some scissors and I chopped off the tops of all those yellow dandelions. I got rid of them all. From a distance, I could step back and I could look at my yard and say, hey, it looks pretty good. The green plant underneath kind of blends in with the grass. You can't really see it. It doesn't look like my yard has dandelions. So I've chopped the top off. But the reality is, my yard is still filled with dandelions. And very quickly, they're just going to pop up in different places and in different ways. We all know we got to kill dandelions down to the roots. Isn't that what, what uh, Roundup even promotes? Kills them down to the roots, right? And whoever created that stuff that you can actually spray on your lawn that kills the weeds and doesn't kill your lawn, brilliant. So, so and I think it's true in, in many ways with this issue. We can ask, what are the social problems that still remain even when slavery has been removed? We can rejoice that slavery has been abolished, but racial tensions still thrive in our country. Slavery has been made illegal, but our society still devalues and abuses women through sexual objectification and pornography. Slavery is gone, but we still have powerful financial institutions that get wealthy while the less fortunate go bankrupt. Slavery can be removed, but yet we still can take away the lives of thousands of humans before they're born. There might not be slavery, but there are still men like Harvey Weinstein and many others who use their power and their influence to control, to prey on vulnerable women. Slavery might be abolished, but economic status, your bank account, where you live, what you drive, how you dress— still shapes how we view people and the value that we place on them. And the truth is, we still have a society marked by the hatred of others, looking down on others, making fun of others. Bullying still happens in every grade, in every school. We still live in a culture that drives many to manipulate and use others in the workplace to get ahead and climb the ladder. You see, abuse will simply take on different forms if we don't deal with a view of humanity that understands all human life as intrinsically valuable, bearing the image of its creator. And when we can reshape our complete understanding of what it means to be human, 
to be made in God's image, to be those loved and saved by Christ, to be brought into a new humanity, then not just slavery is solved and abolished, but every form of social injustice, prejudice, hierarchy has no foundation on which it can stand. And to think that we can create a perfect society apart from the transforming work of the gospel to give us new hearts and new eyes to see is an absolute chasing after a mirage in the desert. We see this reality fleshed out in the sister letter to the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon. We see this this beautiful picture of what happens when not just a social construct is is removed, but a, a heart is changed. The book of Philemon is another letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church, to a man in this church, Philemon, who likely the church actually probably met in his house. And he was a slave owner. He had a slave named Onesimus who who ran away, it seems like, who then encountered the Apostle Paul, maybe then came to faith, or, or Paul just then continued to disciple him. And in this letter, Paul writes to Philemon asking him to receive his slave back. And the things he says here are, 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 are radical in this context. And he starts, and he says in verse 8, he says, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, he says, as an apostle, like, I could command you just to do the right thing here. And I, and I think he's actually referencing a, like kind of a, a freeing of Onesimus. But he says, I want to go deeper. He says, I want to appeal to you out of love, on the basis of love. And then he goes on and he says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent. I didn't want to force this to happen in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. I want you to do this from your heart because you understand this. And he says, for this perhaps is why he was, has parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. And get this, he says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. And Paul calls for Philemon to bring him back, receive his slave back, forgive him. But not just as a slave, as a brother. And in that context, the shell of slavery is the only thing that that, that remains. Its whole foundation is destroyed. And you see, the Bible, I think Jesus in in his teaching, he always went deeper than just the issue that we're trying to tackle. He always went deeper. This is what he, what he did so beautifully in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5. And in that, he starts bringing up all these issues of the law that, that are debated in their day. He's saying, you guys want to wrestle through the reality, and you think the issue is murder. And I say, it's actually hatred in your heart towards others. You guys think that, that the issue is that you just don't commit adultery. Well, Jesus says, actually, it's the lust in your heart. That's the issue. That you guys want to debate and figure out what, when it's okay and how, how, whether were the parameters around you, the way you can get divorced. And Jesus says, I want you to grasp an understanding of the beautiful picture of why God established marriage. You guys want to, want to understand like, like that when you, when you make a promise, you better keep your promises. Jesus says, no, I want you to be honest in everything that you say. They want to understand who their neighbor is that they're called to love and and, and to treat well. And Jesus says, I want you to love everyone. I want you to love your neighbors and pray for those who offend you. And the skeptic may come to the Bible 
and say that the Bible should condemn the institution of slavery. Well, the Bible actually says, be raised with Christ, set your minds on Christ, put to death what is earthly in you, and then the social, racial, economic, cultural power divides that we all struggle with will be dealt with at their very root. So no, the Bible does not outright condemn slavery, but it does set forth a transformation of humanity that most certainly destroys the foundation of slavery and every other form of human injustice and abuse that we experience. And if you just look historically, where and how has slavery been eradicated? Yes, there have been many Christians who have accepted, practiced, and defended slavery. And they were wrong. They missed this. But when men and women were struck with a vision for a renewed humanity through the gospel, it was Christians and continues to be Christians who have led the charge to tear down the structures of slavery. It was William Wilberforce in England who, based out of his, out of his Christian convictions of others made in the image of God, that drove him for years and years to fight and battle against slavery. And he desired to see it ended by the end of his life, and God allowed him just before he died to see that vote cast to make slavery illegal in England. And when slavery has been shut down, you will most often find Christians as the primary driving force in its upheaval. As John Piper has said, to walk in step with the truth of the gospel is to walk away from slavery. There's a lot more that could be said on this issue, but I didn't want to make the whole sermon on this, but I wanted to, I wanted to deal with it. But we need to press forward, we need to move on in Paul's call to these Colossian believers. And even though Paul is specifically addressing slaves and masters in this context, We need to ask, how do the underlying principles here apply in our current context? And I think the the argument of application is actually from greater to lesser. He's saying, if slaves and masters were called to this in what might be an an unjust uh, social situation, how much more in our employer-employee relationships receive these same challenges? So we all have relationships in life that place us either in a position of authority or under authority. And the question of this text is then, how will we respond to either of those conditions? So as we move on, we need to see that this this passage calls us to a renewed approach to work. We need to have a renewed approach to our work. And so so Paul begins and, and, and forces us to ask this question, how should we work? What should our work look like? And he says, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. So the first thing he says is that our our work should be done comprehensively, completely. And remember, Paul is addressing slaves and masters within the church. So we can assume that he's not encouraging disobedience in regards to things of moral evil. He's not saying, like, if you're actually asked to do something immoral, that you should do it. But he's saying... Whatever your boss asks you to do, do it. So the principle is regardless of the situation or condition in life, you have a responsibility to act rightly. Your boss's treatment of you, their ridiculous request of you, your coworker's laziness, 
doesn't give you justification to shirk your own responsibilities. And we are masters of, of, of shirking responsibility and justifying our behavior because of somebody else. See, this with my kids all the time. Kids, go clean up the Legos. Well, Peyton's not, he's not doing it. He's not doing it. So why should I do it? It's like, well, I still asked you to do it. That's, that's the principle set forth here. It doesn't matter all, everything else that's going on around you. Do your work comprehensively and completely. He also says, do it faithfully. He says, not by way of eye service, which is kind of an odd translation. Others would, would translate it saying, not only when their eye is on you. So do you perform your job only when the boss is looking? Only when your manager is around, do you get busy? But do we realize that actually God is always watching us? We teach our kids this with little songs in Sunday school, but we often forget it as we grow up. Do you need somebody looking over your shoulder to actually do your job, or do you do your job faithfully as unto God? The next point he says is do your work sincerely. He says, not as people pleasers. That we're, we're not working in a way that's just trying to uh, have others think highly of us, trying to impress the boss, put on a show to, to highlight ourselves and to make ourselves look good while everybody else looks bad so that, we, so that we please and make ourselves look good. This isn't a self-seeking type of work, but we work sincerely out of fear for God and not man. He's writing to slaves who oftentimes were, were driven to do their work because of fear of what their master would do to them. And he's saying, don't, don't, don't do your work out of fear of men, but actually do your work as you fear God who watches. So that's how he describes how we should work. And then he moves on to force us to answer the question, who do you work for? Who is it that you actually work for? And in this passage, he contrasts earthly masters with this master in heaven. And it's only during this life that we will actually serve human masters. But even in our submission to men, we ultimately are working for God. And working for Christ doesn't remove our obligation to submit to earthly authority, but it actually motivates it. And this is so essential if we are to find purpose and value in our jobs. No matter what you do or how much you enjoy your job, there will be days and there will be moments where you probably hate it. It's going to get old. You're going to be tired. The excitement of it wears off. The applaud from others isn't there. Your coworkers annoy you. There's going to be days where, where work is difficult. That is the reality of work in a fallen world. It will be difficult. And if we look to find ultimate purpose in our work exclusively in some kind of internal sense of satisfaction or fulfillment just in us, then we're, we're probably on a fool's errand. But when we can reframe our work as something that's done for God and to God as ultimately an act of worship, then we can find purpose and significance in almost anything. And that's what Paul says here. He says, whatever you do, no matter what it is that you do, do it as unto Christ. So if you're building homes, if you're painting homes, your work has significance. If you're a nurse dealing with difficult patients, your work has significance. If you're a server serving people who don't leave good tips, it still has significance. If you're a mechanic busting your knuckles, if you're a realtor 
an engineer working on an endless job, if you're a teacher dealing with, with, with kids and parents who never seem to support you, if you're a small business owner just trying to keep it going, if you're in sales and everybody keeps shutting the door, hanging up the phone, your work has significance as it is done to the glory of God. If you're a mom in here, at home, with your kids, daily, they're rarely thankful. They feel like they're constantly sucking the life out of you. It's only a week into summer, and you have no idea how you're going to make it through summer before they get back to school. Remember, your work and labor has significance. And God honors it. He smiles upon it. And service as unto God gives dignity to almost all forms of work. You see, work was meant to be a good thing. Work was given to us before the fall. It wasn't just a result of sin. Our work is made difficult because of, because of sin, but it's not present because of sin. And seeing our work as unto Christ will keep us from two common pitfalls in work. One being idle in work, just trying to avoid it, and the other of idolizing our work, thinking that work is everything. But when you perform your work as unto God, you're representing Him. When you work for a company, in some sense, you represent that company. If we think that we are representing Christ in our work as we are working for Him, it changes and reshapes the way that we work. And it can actually free us up to serve others as we work, as we represent Christ. So do you see others who you can serve in whatever vocation or role you're in? Another wonderful night I had in the restoration industry came a few years back where I had gotten home after a, after a pretty hard week. I think it was a Friday evening. The late jobs always came in on a Friday evening for some reason. But uh, I had gotten home. I was looking to just settle down with my wife, family, watching a movie, just relaxing. And inevitably that phone rang. And I had to respond to it. I had to go out. There was a flood at a, at a house that happened. We get out, and this, this, of course, this, this job is way out in the, on the plains. I got by Eaton, and uh, so, so, so we get out there. We, we show up at the, at the house, and this, this crazy ironic thing happened where the uh, dryer vent hadn't been cleaned out, out for a while, so take note of that, uh, and it caught fire. This fire started burning up the wall, and then it melted the water line for the washing machine. And uh, the, the fire, which was going to destroy the house, actually then put, uh, released this water line, which put the fire out, which was a good thing, but then it continued to flood the house. And so we get there, and uh, we have to take care of this flood. They weren't home at the time, and so they called us. It's probably 10, 30, 11 o'clock by the time I get out there. And this is kind of a, mo- it's a mobile home, and so it has this uh, space underneath it. It's not on a, on a slab or anything. And what happens in, in there is they, 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 they put uh, a bunch of insulation underneath the home to keep it warm, and it's wrapped in plastic. When we pour water down through the house, it just puddles and pools in that insulation and stays in that plastic. And we got to get it out as quickly as possible so that in the few days coming, you know, mold doesn't grow and, and everything. So guess who gets to climb under this house at 1130 midnight after a long week to get this insulation out? I do. So I climb down there. It's muddy because some of the water came through, and I'm laying there, and, I, and I'm, I'm already angry getting to the job because I just... I just didn't want to be there. I had no desire to be there. I was so frustrated, so angry. And being there, I was just all about getting in, getting the job done, and getting home. And so I was under there just ripping out this insulation, trying to get it done. I'm just laying there like, what am I doing? 
like, I, I got to do something else. And I just, I just wanted to walk off the job at that moment. But I, I, pl- I, I pound through it, get the job done, get everything cleaned up, and, uh, and we're about to leave. And, and I just remember this night so vividly, the, uh, the, the wife and mother that was there just came in and like, gave me this, this big hug in tears. Was so thankful that we responded, that we showed up that night and did this. And, and me, in my self-centeredness of just, just angry, not wanting to do it, to, to do this work, failed to realize that God had given me an opportunity to step into the home of this person, this image bearer, who was going through a, a devastating moment of her life where much of her contents of her house had been destroyed. And I was so focused on just myself that I couldn't actually see her. And I, I remember just, just walking away, having received her thankfulness to us. And I, and I think it really reshaped the way I approached work in many ways from there. And I tried to approach every job, no matter how messy it was, no matter how disgusting it was for that season that I had to do that. I tried to see people that I was coming to serve and individuals who, who had a story, who had a life, who had just been uh, completely devastated, who God had put in me and given me gifts who I could actually care for. So in your job, do you see people around you, whether it's your coworkers, your boss, your clients, whoever it is, do you see people in each of those situations that you have an opportunity to serve, to care for, to love, to represent Christ to? Who do you work for? Do you work as unto Christ? And then he lastly answers this question, why should we work hard? And he says, you know that you will receive an inheritance as your reward. What motivates most of us in our work or in our career? What's your motivation? Is it just the paycheck? Is, it, is, is your job just a means to an end to provide financially for what you need? Is it a certain level of success and prestige? Is it, is it gaining influence? What is it that motivates you? Paul challenges us that as we perform our work as in service to Christ, we have to also remember that we are already promised an inheritance. And just remember, he's speaking to slaves who had no rights, who had nothing that they actually owned of themselves. They were actually owned by others. So they had no inheritance. And he's saying, do your work heartily as unto God, because God is going to reward you. You have an eternal inheritance waiting for you. So therefore, in your work, you don't have to find your identity in your work. You don't have to find your, pur- your ultimate purpose in your work. And you can labor hard as those who know that Christ has already promised an eternal inheritance for us. So then our labor in this world actually becomes a context in which we work out our salvation, where we show that our faith and our trust is in God and not in our work. And we cannot find our identity as our, through our place in society, our role, or our career. No matter what you do, first and foremost, you are a Christian, whatever it is that follows. And your identity in Christ should shape the way that you enter into work, the attitude, the heart, the effort and the love that you extend in the workplace. And this call to slaves concludes with this warning in verse 25, where he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And it's a simple principle that no one can think that they are exempt from judgment based on circumstances. All will be judged by the same standard. And here's the reality for all of us, is that we all deserve just punishment for the wrong that we have done. But it was Christ who took the punishment that we deserved, and we, through faith in Him, can receive His righteousness 
And then we can face God's equitable justice knowing that Christ has paid for our wrongs. So there's this call to a renewed view of work. And then in the passage ends in the beginning of chapter 4 with this responsibility of power. The responsibility of power. Wasn't it Ben Parker, Spider-Man's uncle, who said, with great power comes great responsibility? Who knew a comic could be so profound? And it's very simple. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He says, act in justice and equity towards those under you. It's so simple, and yet it's such a common problem in our world. He says, treat your slaves with respect and dignity. Undermine the very foundation that makes slavery so awful. And this command is not just to be applied to bosses and to business owners, but it lands squarely on anyone who holds, by virtue of whatever circumstances, those who hold power, leverage, and influence over another. We're called to lead by example. This is what Jesus did for us. He led by example. There, uh, there's this show, I don't know if it's still on, if it, oh, some of you probably have seen it, Undercover Boss, if you've seen that. Um, it's this crazy show where they, they take these massive companies, and uh, they take kind of the CEO or CFO, the, the president of the company, and then he, he spends a day or a week working in kind of the, the low end of that company, whether it's the owner of McDonald's then going and flipping burgers for a day or, or whatnot. And I think the reason this show works, the reason it, it kind of connects with a lot of people, is because it's, it's kind of this, this crazy thing that we never see. We see these, these multimillionaires who we th- is flying around in their private jets, kind of in their ivory tower, stepping down into the common workplace. And what the show does that really, really gets it going, draws people in emotionally, is that, that it reveals the, the people that work in these companies, the individual stories that they unpack of the people that, that these, this boss or CEO works with. And you see them interact with them, begin to, to have sympathy or, or a connection with this person. And it, it kind of like reveals just this, this equal human experience that regardless of in life, we're, we're just people. And, and people connect with that, and it's this emotional ending where they give the, the people maybe something, you know, that, they, that helps them kind of move on in their goals and, and, and careers. And it's this, this beautiful picture, but we have this, the, like, like an even better picture, where the God of the universe, so far beyond us, perfect and holy, stepped down into our world to become one of us, and then to lay down his life in our place and to forgive us for our wrongs and rebellion against him. And this is the type of leadership that bosses should exhibit, that managers should exhibit, a, a kind of a leadership that, that leads through service, that, 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 that extends oversight through humility. And it's a reversal of the values that we so often see in a cutthroat world. And he says, ultimately, remember, in your authority, you have an ultimate authority. You answer to God in the end. He says, you no matter how, many, how, how powerful you think you are, no matter how many slaves you own or people you control, you have one master, one true and good master that you will answer to. So if you're a business owner and you have employees, if you're a manager of others, how, do you tr- how you treat those under you reflects your understanding of how God has treated you. 
So do you care for your employees in all different aspects, in the environment you create in the workplace, the way you pay them, the benefits you extend, how you speak to them, or do you simply see them as tools to make you successful? This passage calls for those to, in, in power to own the responsibility that comes with that, to, to serve with equity and justice. And this is an ethic that will turn the world upside down. And we see all throughout this passage, going back to, to the wives and husbands, children and, and parents, and now with, with the slaves and masters, we see this reality that the reign of Christ reshapes all of our relationships. So as we conclude, let's remember this, that we have been set free from slavery to sin, and we have become servants of Christ. And we have to allow our identity as those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ to change the way that we view and relate to all people. So let's set our hearts and our minds on things that are above and not on the things of this earth. And as we do that through the power of the Spirit We can grow in our relationships in the workplace. We can see our work as performed to the glory of God, so no matter what we're doing, we can find value and significance in it. We can graciously respect and work under other authority. And when we hold authority, we can grow to treat others respectfully as we reflect our true master and we extend dignity, equity, and justice to everyone. So let's pray and ask God to help us in this high calling. Father, we look to you and we recognize that we are incapable of doing this. We still have sinful hearts who constantly battle for for what we want, to make ourselves look better than others, to raise ourselves up above others, to get ahead. I pray that we would look to Christ as the example for us to humbly serve others, to find value and significance in our work, not because all social structures have been removed, but because you have bought us and changed us. So make us a new people. Make this a community of people in which all forms of injustice, struggle, are put to death and to where we value and love each other truly as you have loved us. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.